All right, let's get started uh, today. Um, by way of introduction, I want to thank Brother Daniel, who accompanied me on Friday. We drove to Raleigh and back, and uh, I just seen something in a bulletin a few weeks ago from my home church, my sending church, where they were going out to a couple of rest homes in Oxford, North Carolina to sing some Christmas carols and to try to minister to the elderly folk there. And I thought that'd be a nice excuse for me to drive down and fellowship with my sending church and some of the folks there. So Daniel accompanied me. We went down and back. I think it was about two in the morning before I pulled in the driveway. But um, it was a real good time. Uh, We were able to give out a few Bibles, um, have a couple of witnessing encounters, not just there in those rest homes, but also as we went out in the community afterwards. It was just a good time, and I praise God for that. You know, people in these rest homes are often neglected, and um, it's a blessing. Uh, They're blessed when people come in even to do something as simple as to sing some Christmas hymns. So that might be something we should look into uh, as a homeschool outreach here at the church. I don't know how easy it is, but it was nice to see people blessed and to be able to give a Bible to someone that didn't have one. So God's Word never returns void. But in that vein, and in the vein of what we're talking about, my home church kind of sits, or my, my sending church kind of sits back off of a road. And when Jamie and I started going there years ago, it was a dirt road. It was surrounded by woods. It was off the grid. And we always enjoyed going back there. And it would be kind of one of those places if you were working alone in the building late at night or, or uh, back there alone, it would be a little bit on the creepy side of things. But things have changed in the Raleigh-Durham area. What used to be rural farmland in Granville County isn't anymore. It's the spreading out and the urbanization that's come north from Raleigh and Durham. And so now there's a housing development through the woods. There's a charter school across the road. It's no longer dirt. And with that has come the problem of people coming on the property and stealing things, vandalizing the church building. And so I remember, uh, I guess it was about a year ago, uh, they needed, they had to put up a surveillance system there at the church because stuff was missing, things were happening to the building. It was just a simple building out there in the woods. And so the surveillance system got set up, and now when you come in there, you know, it's, uh, it, it alerts whoever monitors those things uh, on the phone and it's crazy the things that have been recorded taking place out on this church property. And I had an opportunity to talk with Preacher Mike, and he showed me some of the footage and told me some of the things that he's had to come over there and deal with. And it's absolutely astounding. There was a day and time in America when people, people have always done wickedly. The things we see in our society today have always been there because men are wicked. But there was the shame and the taboo that society put on things that restrained it. But with that gone, even the superstitious fear of God is gone. It used to be if you were going to go out and sin openly, well, you wouldn't sin openly, but if you were going to go out and do something or sneak around, there was at least superstition amongst the people that... I'm not going to do that at a church or on a church property. That's God's house, and whether I believe in Him or not, I'm not going there. We've lost that. There is no fear of God anymore. 
And some of the things that took place, it just astounds me. And I want to, first of all, I want to thank all of our homeschool moms in here who make the sacrifice to teach their children at home. You know, public schools are not the answer, but neither are Christian schools and charter schools. And this school across the, the road from the, the church is a charter school. It's somewhere where it's like a private school in a sense where they parents send their students who are supposed to be of a different echelon in the public schools to get a good education. And one of the things that was caught on the camera, and I won't go into detail, were two students from the charter school came over there in broad daylight and were engaging in something. I'm not talking about a girl and a guy. I'm talking about two high school boys. That's the stuff that goes on even in the private Christian and charter schools. No fear of God, broad daylight, leave the school and come over to a church to commit debauchery. And there was no doubt what was going on when you looked at the camera footage. So that is the world we live in. Live in. Ladies, teaching your children in the home is the only option we have. And those that think, oh, I'll just put them in a Christian school because they'll be socially retarded if I don't. Well, I want my children to be socially retarded when it comes to that garbage and that debauchery. That's foolishness. So keep making that sacrifice. It's worth it. We live in a society that has turned its back upon God. There is no fear of God. And I don't think we as Christians have a clue the level of unrighteousness that exists under the surface in our society, even in these rural, conservative, Republican sections or corners of the state. I don't think we have a clue. I think we're naive. And the way we overcome that naivete is to go out into the world and to see it and to carry out the Great Commission. Jesus never called us to stay home and to hide ourselves. So we don't homeschool our children to hide them. We homeschool them to train them so that when we go out, they can go out knowing what is right or wrong and they can shine the light of the gospel without fear. Because without the gospel, without the Messiah, I don't care what the politician's platform is. I don't care what they say in Washington. I don't care how important the next upcoming election is. Without the gospel, without Jesus Christ, without basic morality that God considers important, this country's finished. If that's what our private and charter school kids are doing without fear of God, we can only imagine what's really going on in Washington or the public schools. I think homeschooling our children is something that we should fight for and be willing to die for. That's my opinion. I'm willing to die for that freedom. Jesus Christ and the Messiah, the millennial reign of Christ is the only hope. And that's what we should be looking for. That's what we're talking about here in Revelation. And I don't mean to harp and harp and harp upon that, but it needs to be in these dark days. We can't put our faith and trust in politicians. We must do our duty. We must be good citizens. We must take a stand and fight when the day comes. But our hope, unlike many of the Jews living in the land of Israel when Jesus was born, is not 
in a revolutionary force rising up to overthrow Rome. It has to be in the Messiah. The Messiah that's Simeon and Anna, that Zacharias and Elizabeth and those looking for consolation in Israel were waiting for. And when he came, they understood what he came and what he came to do. But he's coming again. He's coming again and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. And this is what we have been talking about in Revelation 20. We're camped out right now in verse 7. And we're going to be camped out there for a little while. In verse 7 of chapter 20. And when the thousand years, something very literal, are expired. I talked about that Greek word last week. It means accomplished or fulfilled. It has a specific purpose. It has to happen. When those years are expired, then Satan will be loosed out of his prison. So in that verse, we have a thousand years of human history summed in a single sentence. So between the first and the second half of the verse, there's a lot that goes on according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament sheds a lot on the purpose of of the millennial reign of Christ, what will take place during that reign, what life will be like during that time for both Israel and the church and the unregenerate, and why it has to happen. So I think it's important to go back and look at these things. And however long it takes is however long it takes. So a lot happens in verse 7 when you zoom out and look at the Scriptures. And so we're kind of camped out here right now. And we will be for some time. So I hope you find it uh, refreshing, encouraging. Last week we talked about why is it that a thousand years, which I believe to be literal, have to be fulfilled. And we talked about the purpose of the Old Testament, how Paul exhorts us to know and to understand these things because they serve as a warning and an exhortation, especially upon those of us who are living when the end, in the end days or the last times. And they're a source of comfort and encouragement and hope. Therefore, our learning and for our exhortation or admonition. Therefore, it's only a fool who judges Israel's history. A wise man learns from it. And we should learn from it. And they shed light on these things that are coming for the earth. And so we, we started to look back uh, by way of background at what God told the people of Israel with regard to the land, the promised land. We looked in the book of Leviticus at what God expected the people to do when they came into the promised land. They were to sow their fields and reap their harvest for six years. The seventh year was to be a Sabbath of rest for the land, whereby they did not sow anything. In fact, God promised that He would make sure they had what they need. In the sixth year, it would yield a crop that would provide for them, not only in the sixth year, but the Sabbath rest year and the following year in which they would sow for the, ne- you know, for, the follow- for the next year. And so it was a step of faith. This is what I expect you to do, and you're going to have to trust me. There's plenty in God's Word that we may not understand or we may not think is important. There's plenty that the church certainly doesn't think is important nowadays, even though the Bible is clear. There's plenty that the government, the president himself, might pay lip service to, but obviously doesn't think it's important. 
But when God tells us to do something, regardless of whether or not we think it has a reason, it's important to Him. And that ought to motivate us to obey. The Bible talks about the law of God. In Malachi, it's written that when God gave Israel the law, the law has three major parts. The moral law, the Torah, or the Ten Commandments, as it's called in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments is the moral law of God written on our conscience. It reflects the conscience. Then you have the judgments. The judgments are those things that ensure the preservation of a peaceful society on this earth. They make logical sense in terms of preserving a society. Now, if we would follow the judgments as a nation that God gave to Israel, then almost all the problems that are plaguing us today would be solved. We don't have the stomach for some of that stuff, but God said it was righteous, and because God said it's righteous, it's righteous. According to God, when sodomy and homosexuality plagues a society, the sodomite or the homosexual is to be taken outside the camp and stoned and eradicated. I'm not going to make an apology for that. It's harsh. But I don't apologize for God's Word. I'm not suggesting that that's what we need to do. But I know why it was designed and what effect it had. And I'm certainly not going to apologize for it. The judgments tell us how we're to treat the elderly. How we're to treat the uh, handicapped. How we're to treat the immigrant. We don't look at any of those things. And these things ensure that our society would be preserved and continue. And when sin is dealt with the way God says it should be dealt with in a society, then you won't have boys at a charter school thinking that's okay. What you'll have is a society that is deterred by the taboo that's been created as a result of God's Word. But we don't care about any of that stuff. Yet it remains important to God. Yet it remains important. Israel didn't care about keeping Sabbath in the land. In fact, we're going to see that when Solomon built the temple and dedicated the temple, the Sabbath to the land was tied to the temple. We're going to see that when that temple was built, never once after the dedication of Solomon's temple, all the way to its destruction, never once, not a single time, did Israel ever give the land Sabbath rest on the seventh year? Not a single time. In fact, there's much that Israel never did. And remember, it was Israel that said to God at Sinai, it was Israel that said, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Not smart. In your fellowship with the Lord, in your prayers with the Lord, in your seeking of the Lord's will. Don't be the one that says, God, whatever you tell me, I'm going to do. <coughs> Don't say that. It's foolish. But that's what Israel said. We're going to do it. And they didn't. They didn't keep the Passover. When Hezekiah finally kept the Passover in his reign, it hadn't been done in the land for decades, for centuries. They never listened. We're going to see that with the millennium, one of the purposes of the millennium, you said you were going to do these things I'm going to hold you to your word. Israel is going to do what God commanded them to do in the millennium. 
That's why there's sacrifices. We can't stomach that. When Jesus died on the cross, why would there be animal sacrifices? Well, the book of Ezekiel tells us exactly why. God's going to hold Israel to its word. And she will do and obey the things, the statutes and the judgment that God gave. Another part of the law are the statutes. The judgments are what ensure our society would survive. The statutes are those things that transcend our understanding. They don't really make sense. We don't understand why. But God said to do it. And for that reason, they're important. In a sense, they're a, uh, 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 a test of our faith. There was much that God told Israel in her religious and civil statutes that she was to do because that's what He wanted. And it didn't matter whether they understood it or not. Israel was told, the priests were told when they did God's service, the Levites, they weren't to wear garments that were a mixture of wool and linen. You know, the atheists like to poke fun at us when we go out and preach the gospel. Are you wearing a shirt that's made of mixed fibers? Is your shirt a cotton polyester blend? Well, you don't believe the Bible. You're a hypocrite. You're going to hell. That's foolishness. God told the Levites and the priests not to mix linen and wool in the service of the Lord. And there was a reason for that, whether they understood it or not. Again, Ezekiel tells us why. Because they're not going to be allowed to do that in the Millennial Temple either. But these statutes are important, not because we understand them, but because God said it. And I would say that the Sabbath land's rest was one of the statutes because God had a purpose for it. It foreshadowed something. It reminded them of something. But they didn't care. When God says something is important, it's important. And if we don't keep it, there are consequences regardless of whether or not we put it out of our mind. There are things going on in this country today that were made legal decades ago that are still going on. And yet we think that because the economy is good, God's forgotten about it. Well, if we just don't talk about the unborn babies, God's forgotten about it. It's not that way at all. And God's dealings with Israel show us otherwise. So this land keeping the Sabbath rest was important. Israel did not keep it. And as we got said at the end of last week's preaching, that's why they were carried away captive for 70 years. 70 years they went into Babylonian captivity, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And that is tied to their failure to keep the Sabbath rest. Oh, there was plenty of other stuff they were guilty of, but even that was important to God. And we're going to see that laid out in Chronicles. But before we do, I want to change directions a little bit because I think this speaks directly to our society. It speaks directly to uh, our political persuasions and what's happening in this country and why it's happening. I want to look at the book of 1 Kings. Because there was something that was important to God that often kings would know and acknowledge, but they didn't do anything about it. There were often kings in Israel's history that paid lip service to righteousness that said, we need to do this or we need to do that, but they never did anything about it. It was just political speech. God sees... And God remembers. And I think there's a lot of political speech in our country today on the right. A lot of tweeting, a lot of talk. 
but very little is actually done. And we see this here in 1 Kings. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 15, 1 through 8. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, reigned Abijam over Judah. In 975 B.C., after Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. Jeroboam of the northern tribes of Israel led a secession of those tribes from the reign of David's house. Solomon's son Rehoboam was very foolish in his dealings. God had sent the prophet to Jeremiah that I'm going to judge the house of Solomon because he turned away from me in his latter years. Jeroboam was told, if you will fear me and you will serve me, I will make you a sure house. And I will bless your seed on the throne of Israel. But not forever because I made promises to David. And I'm going to keep them. But I will give you a sure house if you will obey me. So Jeroboam was given opportunity to fear God, to follow Him, and to be blessed. The kingdom divided in 975 B.C. And suddenly Jeroboam got his panties in a wad because the Levites and the others from the tribes in the north continued to go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple as they were commanded. And Jeroboam got to thinking, well, how will God give me a sure house if I continue to let these people go to Judah and worship in the temple? That'll never happen. I can't trust God to do what he said. I've got to take matters into my own hands. And so what Jeroboam did is he erected two religious shrines in the northern kingdom. One in Bethel, which is within sight of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and the other in the north in Dan. And he erected two what at those shrines? Do you remember the story? Two golden calves. And he ordained his own priest, not from the Levites. He set up his own festivals instead of the Feast of Tabernacles. On the 15th day of the 7th month, he ordained his own festival, the 15th day of the 8th month. And he came up with this whole religious thing to worship God that the Bible says he devised of his own heart. And those golden calves became a stumbling block to the northern kingdom of Israel. In Israel today, there's nothing left of the site that was at Bethel. But in Dan, in the north, you can visit the biblical site of Dan. In fact, there's a gate there, a Canaanite gate that dates back to the time of Abraham. It has been excavated. And Abraham, when Lot was captured by the kings, Abraham pursued those kings to rescue Lot. And he came to Dan and got, his, uh, uh, got Lot back. And he probably walked right through that gate. You can stand there and look at a gate that Abraham would have walked through. But at Dan, there are ruins from the, from the Israelite city. And the base of that altar that had the golden calf that Jeroboam built is still there. You can stand there. You can see the, the base of the altar and the various structures that were used by these false priests to worship at Dan. It's still there. The Bible's history. The names of places in the Bible aren't like the Book of Mormon. They're still there. They're actually places. The Book of Mormon names all this stuff that never existed. They talk about battles involving millions of people up in, or thousands and thousands of people up in upstate New York, but yet nobody's ever found uh, a weapon or a shield or anything archaeologically up there to indicate there was a battle. It's not the same in Israel. They're finding things all the time because the Bible is history. A lot of history written ahead of time. That's what God can do. But these calves were set up and they became a stumbling block so that after the reign of Jeroboam, there were kings who did righteous things. There was a king called Jehu. Jehu was called by God to punish the house of Ahab 
Wicked Ahab and Jezebel. They had introduced Baal worship. Now, keep in mind, when Israel went to these calves, they were worshiping God. They weren't worshiping a false god. They were like, we're worshiping the God of our fathers. But their error was that they wanted to worship God in their way. The same error that Cain made. You don't worship God on your own terms. That's a problem with the church in America today. We worship God on His terms. But Israel committed the error of Cain. These uh, calves were stumbling block. But then you had kings come along like Jehu, who was used of God. He got rid of King Ahab's son. He wiped out the wicked house of Ahab. And he deceived all the prophets and the followers of Baal to come and have a a great celebration to worship Baal. And then he sent the troops in and destroyed it all. He eradicated Baal worship from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now that's a great thing. He liked to brag about his zeal too. There was a time where he called one of his friends up in the chariot, come look and see what I've done for the Lord. Folly. But you know what Jehu never did? He got rid of the Baal worship But he never did anything about those golden calves. They were still going. And so a man that did something righteous ultimately ended up having the exact same legacy that every one of those kings of the north had. Departed not from the the sins of Jeroboam that made Israel to sin. So guys, when we look at history, I mean, we may have presidents that say things and do things, but when they turn to blind eye, a blind eye to the unrighteousness that God considers and remembers, their legacy is going to be no different than those that go before. As far as I'm concerned, as long as Planned Parenthood is funded, as long as babies are slaughtered in the numbers they are in this country, as long as sodomy and all of these things run rampant, I don't care if an embassy is built in Jerusalem. I don't care if our taxes are lowered. I don't care if benefits are given to veterans. I don't care if you stand up there and say, in America, we believe in God a thousand times. At the end of the day, your legacy will be no different than Obama, Clinton, Bush. Be no different. Because the blood's still being shed. The unrighteousness still prevails. These things are important to God. But here in 1 Kings 15, we're not talking about the house of Jeroboam. We're talking about the house and line of Solomon. Solomon's son Rehoboam, who was foolish in his own ways, much like his father when it came to women, was foolish. He didn't listen to wise counsel. He listened to his peers, took foolish counsel, and as a result, the kingdom divided. He was a fool in his own right. His son comes to the throne in the 18th year of Jeroboam, and his son's name is Abijah or Abijam. This would have been about 958 B.C. So you're talking about um, 17, 18 years after the calves were erected and the, the kingdom was divided. Three years, verse 2, he reigned in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, God's covenant with David was unconditional. It hasn't changed. That's why Messiah has to come and reign. The Lord, his God, did. nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. 
because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. And David, when confronted with it, was quite unlike Saul. Well, God, I'm guilty. I have sinned, but the people made me do it. David's response was, I have sinned. No excuses. He owned it. That was a big difference. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, those two dynasties, all the days of his life, all the days of Abijah's life. Now, the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his, in his stead. This King Abijah is interesting because in many ways, he was a man of faith. In many ways, he was humble and listen to the counsel of a prophet God called. And he was used of God to bring about a great victory in Judah. And you're like, what the heck are you talking about? I didn't read anything about that. Well, that's not recorded here. This is recorded in the Chronicles. When you look at the kings in the Chronicles, the kings were written contemporaneously with these events. It's like a an annal or a chronicle written at the time it happened, looking forward to the judgment God was prophesying would come upon Israel, the Babylonian captivity. The chronicles weren't written until after. They were written during or after the captivity. So they're looking back on that same history. Kings is telling us what happened. Chronicles tells us why it happened. It's looking back on history from a spiritual perspective and being like, this is why this happened. In order to convict Israel that she would do right in the future. See, the chronicler does with Israel's history what we should do with ours. We look back at it from a spiritual perspective and we understand why and we change our ways accordingly. You know, we're able to look at the Civil War here in the United States in a way very different than my ancestors were. My great-great-great-grandfather saw things in his day and time. He took up his musket and went to defend his hearth and his home against the Yankee invader and was willing to give his life for it. He survived the war. He's buried in Granville County. He lived in a specific time where he had to make difficult decisions based upon difficult circumstances. You know, we like to judge people in other days and times thinking that everything's so simple. That's foolishness. You know, a, a fool criticizes or judges history. A wise man learns from it. But I can look back and see the bigger picture and understand why decisions were made, why they were made on the other side, what God did, and therefore learn from it. But we don't do that. We don't, if we learn from what happened in this country in 1861, 1865, we'd be doing things a whole lot different right now in these days where this nation's so divided. But we don't learn. The only thing a man ever learns from history is that man never learns from history. But the Chronicles shed light looking back. And so often they recap 
episodes of faith in the life of Judah's kings. The focus is on the kings of Judah, the messianic line that God promised would come through David. And Chronicles shows that God kept His promise. Looking back on history as a source of hope for the future. And so we have things that are shed about the lives of these kings, whereas the book of Kings just summarizes. Some people claim that Kings and Chronicles is full of contradictions. Not at all. Not at all. I think God puts stumbling blocks in His Word sometimes just to trip people up who have no faith. But for the man of faith that not... The, man of, the religious man believes in God. The man of faith believes God. So for the man that believes God, these are no contradictions at all. The context and comparing Scripture with Scripture confirms that. But in Chronicles, we read about this same king. And this is something that sheds light on exactly what is happening today, exactly why this country can't be fixed, and exactly why we need the Messiah, why we need that rod of iron, why we need that kingdom to come. Second Chronicles 13. Chapter 13 tells about the reign of Abijam. I'm not going to read it all. But during his days, there was war with the northern kingdom. And there was a time where in the mountains of Ephraim to the northwest of Jerusalem, Jeroboam raised up an army to invade the southern kingdom. And we're told that near uh, Mount Zimaraim, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, that Jeroboam had an army of 800,000 men of valor. You know, those are large armies. You know, we don't feel large standing armies today like they used to. I mean, some of the armies that were on the fields of battle during the Civil War are astounding in terms of the numbers of men. Even World War I. But so an 8,000, 100,000 man strong army was sent to invade Judah and to take it back over during the reign of Abijah. So Abijam led his troops, but he only had half that number, only 400,000 men of Judah. And they went out to meet the armies of the northern kingdom in battle. And we're told that before the battle, this king climbed up Mount Zimaraim and addressed the army of the north, addressed King Jeroboam. In verse 5, this king is boasting or, or preaching to the northern kingdom spread out on the fields below on the eve of battle. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever? Do you guys not realize that God made a covenant with David to give him a kingdom? Even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against the Lord. And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Rehoboam was his father. When Rehoboam was young and tenderhearted and could not withstand them. And now you think that you're going to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David. And you have a great multitude, and there are with you those golden calves which Jeroboam made you for gods. 
And so in other words, this son of Rehoboam said, look, you took advantage of my dad, you went and did your own thing, and you've forgotten that God made a covenant with David, and now you think you're going to come down here with all your men and your golden calves that you trust and take away the covenant that God made. In other words, he's saying, look, we're not afraid of you. God made a covenant and he's going to keep it. And then he goes to say in verse 9, but have you not cast out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and have made your own priest after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whosoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. In other words, the northern kingdom cast out the Levites. Jeroboam made priests of his own from whatever tribe he wanted to. The whole thing was profane. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also set they in order. And then he just goes on to talk about how we keep the things God called us to do. We're doing what's right. It's the Levites that minister. We're not following all this false religion. Verse 12, And behold, God Himself is with us for our captain, and His priest with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel. Fight not against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not prosper. So you had this king get up on the mountaintop and say, Look, we believe the covenant God gave. We're not afraid of you. God's not changed His covenant. We keep the ordinances. And you do well to remember that because you will not prosper. You won't take the kingdom away from David. God made a promise. So you had faith. You had faith that put away fear in the face of an army twice the size of the one He commanded. You had things said that were good, that sounded good, But yet there was a hint of self-righteousness. And here's why. Because immediately after this, we're told that Jeroboam's army ambushed in front and behind. They sent part of their army behind and ambushed the children of Judah in front and behind. And the battle looked bad. It looked like the king, the son of Solomon, his grandson, and the people from Judah that were supposedly following the Lord would be overwhelmed, overrun. Verse 14, and when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind, and they cried unto the Lord. So they had nothing else to do but cry unto God. And what did God do? He, he gave them the victory. In fact, we were told later that 400,000 troops of the southern kingdom defeated an army twice its size. Not only defeated it, but 500,000 men more than they could even put on the field of battle, were killed from the northern kingdom in that battle. And we're told, thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, verse 18, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the God of their fathers. That's why they prevailed. Well, we might think that's the end of the story. We might think, oh, what a great testimony of faith. What a good king. Let's vote for him. Re-elect the king. 2020. 
But that's not the end of the story. You see, the chronicler, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks into the hearts and the motives. And something very revealing comes out in the very next verse. Remember, this king stood up and boasted about how we follow the Lord. We don't follow these golden calves. Look at you with your golden calves and your priests and all your own religion you've made up. You will not prosper. He was right. Amen. Trusted upon the Lord. Amen. There's a lot that our president says. Amen. In America, we believe in God. Amen. But look at the very next verse. And Abijah pursued after Jeroboam and took cities from him. So not only did they defeat the invading army, but they were able to acquire land. They took frontier towns away from the northern kingdom and possessed them of their own. And took cities from him. Guess what the first one is? Bethel with the towns thereof. And Jeshana with the towns thereof. And Ephraim with the towns thereof. Neither did Jeroboam recover strength again in the days of Abijam. And the Lord struck him and he died. So that was the end of Jeroboam. Never again was he able to muster strength to attack the southern kingdom. And he finally just died. He had an opportunity to be blessed. Didn't listen to the prophet. And he died with the legacy of making Israel to sin. God gave the southern kingdom victory. King Abijah, he gave victory. They were able to conquer territory. They trusted in the Lord. One of the cities they took was Bethel. They took it. They took control of it. It became a possession for Judah in his reign. I want you to turn to 2 Kings 23, 15. We're going to telescope into the future of over 300 years. About 300 years later, we're going to see this town mentioned again. 2 Kings 23, these are, this is in the reign of Josiah, the last righteous king of the sons of David. The Babylonian captivity would happen very shortly thereafter, but in the days of Josiah, who was tender and sought the Lord, God brought revival. The days when Jeremiah the prophet didn't say what the people wanted to hear, but pointed the finger. And there was a time of revival. Jeroboam, I mean, Josiah was prophesied by name back in 1 Kings to Jeroboam himself when he raised up these false altars. And we're told, the prophet told Jeroboam, these altars that you've raised up at Dan and Bethel, there's coming a king one day, Josiah by name. He's going to destroy them and he's going to offer the bones of these priests on that altar. So this was all prophesied. But so now we fast forward over 300 years, verse 15. Moreover, chapter 23, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebite, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place, he broke down and burned the high place and stamped it to powder and burned the grove. We thought, you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with everything we just read? Well, what it has to do is that over 300 years later, that altar's still standing there. So you had a righteous king, or one that claimed to be righteous, who said some good things, who trusted in the Lord, who was given a great victory, and was given the town and had an opportunity to do what was done here. And he must not have done it. 
because it was still standing when Josiah came along. So in other words, God gives us the great victory. We keep God. We're passing all this good legislation and we're, we're still using the Levites and going to the temple. And then I, I come, he comes into possession of Bethel and has say-so over what happens and has a perfect opportunity to get rid of something that is a sin and a stain in the land and does not do it. And so what's his legacy? His legacy is not that he trusted in the Lord. You don't find that written anywhere in the book of Kings. His legacy is that he continued in the sins of his father. So I I share this with you because it's an example of why we cannot put our trust in men. We need the king. We need the Messiah. We need the earth to be at rest and for Him to rule and reign in righteousness with a rod of iron. When we still have the sins that stain this culture taking place sometimes at even more rapid paces than they did under Obama, how can we believe that Donald Trump is a savior? Let me see one of these wicked people in the deep state arrested and tried for treason. Let me see at least the federal funding for Planned Parenthood go down as instead of up. Let me at least see abortions go down instead of continue on in the status quo. And then maybe I'll take all the bold talk seriously. Maybe I'll take the tweet seriously because I can look at history and see how men are. You can talk a big talk and then when you have the power to do something about it, you don't because it's not politically correct. And that's exactly what we see here with this king. This king had episodes of faith. He relied upon the Lord. But yet, in all of his boasting. When I think about the boast from the top of that mountain, I think about the tweets that come on the phone every day, sometime in the middle of the night. Pride always goes before a fall. Another lesson from the reign of Abijah that we could learn is that politicians talk a big talk, but they fail to use their power to actually affect righteousness. This king could have destroyed that altar. He could have put a stop to it. After talking about what a wicked thing it was. But he didn't. Didn't do anything with it. Notwithstanding when things are as bad as they are. Casting a vote. Going to a rally. Listening to talk radio. Calling your congressman. These these things are not the best way to see the country fixed. We're told that God gave Judah the victory because they cried unto the Lord. To cry unto the Lord is the best form of self-defense. It's your only hope when you're overcome by your own folly. We in this country are overcome by our own folly, just like this king. Not only our politicians, but the churches. Look at what's being done in Washington today to the president. I'm not offended by it because I think this president is the answer for our country or that he's the greatest president we've ever had. I'm not so foolish to think that. I'm offended because it's an attack against me and my family. 
But we look at what's happening in Washington and all the false witnesses and the false charges and the circus, and we feel for a man being wrongly accused. But why are we surprised that they're doing that in Washington? How many deacon boards and Baptist churches in this country over the years have done the exact same thing to their pastors because the pastor had the guts to say what God's Word said? I've sat in those meetings. I've gotten that phone call from the preacher that says, hey, I'd just like to see if we could get together this afternoon and talk a little bit. And then I drive down there and there's a parking lot full of cars. And a personnel committee gathered around a table. How many times have wicked people in churches done the exact same thing to their righteous pastor that the wicked people in Congress are doing to the president? Where do you think they learned it from? All the gossip, all the backbiting. How long is that going on in church? Well, how can you impeach a president over hearsay? How many pastors have been thrown out of a church over hearsay? We've taught the nation how to act like this. And then we've kept our mouth shut and done nothing about it, just like the king. And that's why we are where we are today. We are to blame. That's why we need the king. That's why we need that kingdom to come. And when that kingdom comes, it will accomplish a purpose. So anyway, that's uh, was kind of supposed to be my introduction. We're supposed to be talking about revelation. But if we can't make scripture practical to speak to the here and now, then why am I even standing up here? Why am I even standing up here? I don't think the country can be fixed. But that doesn't mean that we can't be used by God to do something for His glory in these last days. That doesn't mean He can't save individuals. You know, on Thanksgiving Day, I got a voicemail. Something I never would have expected. I really never shared this thing, but I told Jamie about it. But I got a voicemail. We had the privilege um, this summer of hosting... Three young Jewish men from Brooklyn, New York. Now, by looking at them and interacting with them, they were super cool. We had a great time. We went for a hike. They came over for dinner and we had uh, lunch one day. They all took uh, a copy of God's Word, listened as I uh, shared some things about the Bible. I remember we went to a hike on a hike. It was getting dark and I took them up to the top of this hill outside of Huaraz where there's a giant Catholic cross on top of it overlooking the town. And I was just kind of asking myself on the way up, you know, I'm going to have to address this when we sit up here and hang out over the city. Josiah was with me. So as we're approaching, we're kind of walking around. I said, all right, guys. I said, I'm just going to come out and be flat honest with you. There's something I need to say to you. Okay. We're, we're, we're almost at the top of the hill. And you're going to notice that there's a giant cross, a giant Catholic cross on top of this hill. So I just want to clear up some confusion real quick. Number one, a Catholic cross is not the cross of the Messiah that's portrayed in the Brick of the New Testament. And secondly, Catholic Jesus is not Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Like, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, first of all, Catholic Jesus doesn't know how to get off the cross. He's stuck up there. But the Messiah of Israel rose up from the dead just like your prophet said he would. So I thought, you know, I'd clear the air. 
I'd be very Jewish and have some chutzpah. And it actually resulted in some real interesting conversation. One of the young men said, man, I really like talking about stuff like this. Now, I didn't know much about them or their families at that point, but later I just kind of looked around on Facebook, whatever. These young men come from Orthodox families. And I saw pictures that showed that, made it very clear. And maybe they just needed a break from all that. But I wouldn't have expected that type of an interaction from an Orthodox Jewish person about Yeshua like that. You know, most of the people we talk to are more secular minded and are more open. In fact, I'd rather talk to a flaming, open Jewish homosexual about the Messiah than I would an ultra-Orthodox dressed in the black and white. Any day. Because there's almost a humility and a willingness to hear in the one situation that you wouldn't find in the other. You know, I've had conversations with very obvious homosexuals from Israel that will take a copy of the New Testament are actually thankful that you took the time to speak with them. You know, their homosexuality is the least of their problems. And I'm, I'm definitely not underscoring the fact that that is an abomination to the Lord. One of the trustees on our ministry board, a young man that I value very much, had the opportunity to confront someone in his family the other day that's an open homosexual. And unlike all of these other families who believe one thing until one of their family members decides they're gay and then they change their whole mind about what God says, he had the guts to look him in the eye and say, your lifestyle is an abomination to God and you're going to die and burn in hell unless you repent. And that man came back, well, God made me this way, blah, 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 blah. You're deceived, my friend. God didn't make you that way. You've made a choice to live a way that God hates. And you're going to go to hell unless you repent. Amen. That's what love is. But um, it was, you know, I say all of that. We had a great encounter, a good time. We kind of kept in touch after that. But on Thanksgiving Day, you know, I don't, I don't even know if Jewish communities living in the States, I don't think they would celebrate an American Thanksgiving. I don't know. I'm not going to say one way or the other. I don't know. But one of those young men called me and the other two were in the background and he said he just wanted to use the auspicious occasion of our Thanksgiving to wish us a happy Thanksgiving and just to say how thankful we are that we we met you guys on our trip in South America, that you guys added a spark to our trip uh, that we'll never forget. And I just wanted you to know how thankful we are for you guys. And I hope we meet again. Unexpected. Unexpected. So God can still use us in these dark days to do something. What I wanted to do today was look further at the land and the Sabbath rest that God said was very important. When the thousand years are expired, they they last a thousand years for a specific purpose. We talked about Jeremiah and the prophecy of the 70 years of captivity, that Israel would go into captivity for 70 years. And 2 Chronicles actually tells us why. Um, let's just look at that for a minute since we've been camped in the Chronicles this morning. We're going to move forward in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And we'll let this be 
a means of conclusion here. Now we, we see, we talked about King Josiah. He destroyed these golden calves. He was used by God. He, he wrought revival in the land. A big part of it is because they found a book of the Word of God, a, book, a copy of God's Word, and read it, and they tore their clothes like, oh my goodness, we're in trouble with the Lord. And they repented, and God blessed His kingdom. It's said that Josiah loved the Lord God with all his heart, strength, soul, and or all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He died at an early age. Sometimes people die at an early age, and we don't understand it. But God says in Isaiah that oftentimes the righteous perish, so that I because I deliver them from the evil days that are to come. But Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six. This is after Josiah dies. He dies a young death in a battle with the. Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's stead. Josiah had arranged for his grandson, Jehoiachin, to be made king upon his death. And that's why we're told in one of the accounts that Jehoiachin was eight years old. In the other account, he's 18. He was eight years old when he was made king. But he was 18 when he finally sat on the throne because the people of the land were like, "Uh, we're going to suddenly forget what this righteous king has done for us. We're going to make our own king. Well, they wanted a king that would kiss up to the nations around them to try to ensure their peace. And then Nebuchadnezzar came and made his own king. And so the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, made him king in the room of his father. Jehoahaz was 20 and 3 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And then we go down to verse 11, and we see that after Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim was made king, and he reigned uh, 11 years. And then you had Nebuchadnezzar come and take him away. And then he would die later during a rebellion against Babylon. Then Jehoiachin was made king, the one that Josiah wanted to be king when he was eight years old. When he's 18, he's finally made king. He doesn't serve very long. Three months is all. And then King Nebuchadnezzar came down and carried him captive. And so when this Jehoiachin, the grandson of Josiah, was carried captive, that's when Ezekiel was carried captive. That's when Ezekiel dates the captivity in the prophet Ezekiel. And so this would have been about 597 of B.C. And then Nebuchadnezzar set up his own king. He took one of the uh, sons of Josiah and made him the king, made Zedekiah the king. So I want to look at verse 11. And Zedekiah was one and 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. So during all of this madness and successions of kings, succession of kings, Jeremiah was still around. And God sent Jeremiah to, not to rally around the king, but to put his finger in his face and tell him to humble himself because this is what God's going to do. And God gave this Zedekiah an opportunity and he refused. He didn't listen. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God, but stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. So this king had made a promise, a treaty with Nebuchadnezzar, and then he hardened his neck against the prophet's counsel and rebelled. 
Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. So everything that had been done during the reign of Josiah was so quickly undone. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. When God sends messengers who speak the truth, who warn, who point the finger, who preach hellfire and brimstone, everything we say we don't need or we don't want in our society today, that is God's compassion. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised His words. When we read these things, we need to be thinking about our country right now. God deals with nations. The only difference between us and Israel is we don't have a promised end of blessing. And misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. At that point, there was no remedy. Nothing would stop Babylon from destroying that temple. I think think that's where we are today. There is no remedy. Trump 2020 is no remedy. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for our president, exercise our right to vote, hope things go a certain way, but we're past the point of remedy because we're just like these people here as a nation. Mocking God's messengers, ignoring His commandments thinking that the, un, the, sh- the shed blood of the unborn will just go away if we don't think about it. Thinking it doesn't cry out to God from the ground like the blood of Abel did. Therefore God brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of the princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, the temple Solomon built, an ancient wonder of the world, and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. There are archaeological layers in Jerusalem today Down below the evidences of the Roman destruction where you can see where this was done. It was burned. still there. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. So here we have the what? God judged his people. He carried away a captive. He had the temple and the city was destroyed. Those that survived the sword were carried captive until the reign of the king of Persia, Cyrus, 70 years later. And in typical chronicles uh, fashion, we're told exactly why. Why? Why was it 70 years? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. 
Cyrus is another one called by name over a century before his birth. Just like Josiah and the prophet Isaiah, he's called by name. That he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and put it also in writing saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all the people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So in the Chronicles. The Chronicles are the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. Their order is a little different. Ours is more of a chronological order, but the Chronicles are not part of the prophets. They're part of the Psalms or the writings. And so ends the Old Testament. Um, Why was it 70 years? Because Israel esteemed lightly that something that God considered very important. And they paid for it. The land wasn't given its rest. I'll make sure it rests. And it rested for 70 years. That means that for 490 years, Israel disobeyed God. And thought, well, we'll just forget about it. And we'll boast about it. And we'll, we'll make sure the Levites do their job. And we'll stand on mountains and talk about how we're following the Lord. And we'll just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. 490 years later, God wasn't ignoring it. And the land was going to enjoy its rest. Whether they obeyed or not. And they lost the promised land for 70 years. But God keeps His covenant. Just like the prophets had said, They came back. So here we see God's judgment tied directly to the Sabbath rest of the land. Sabbath rest is and always has been important to God. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God rested in His creation. Israel was told to keep the Sabbath. It's not Sunday, it's Saturday. From sundown... On Friday evening till sundown on Saturday, they're to keep the Sabbath. And it wasn't because it was to make them righteous. It was that they would rest and learn to trust God. Can we not step away from everything we've got going on for even one day to rest in the Lord? Or are we too busy and we got something to do? Now, I'm not suggesting, suggesting like the seven-day Adventists, who in many ways are a cult, I'm not suggesting that we need to keep the Sabbath. We're not Jews. The Sabbath was a a special agreement between God and Israel. The same Israel that said, everything you say, God, we will do. Exodus and Ezekiel make that clear. That's 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 between God and Israel. When the Israelis asked me if I keep Sabbath, I said, well, why would? I'm a Gentile. God gave that commandment to you. However, I do enjoy Sabbath rest and I think it's very important, but my Sabbath rest is in the Messiah. You see, guys, our Sabbath rest isn't about one day. It's about walking with the Messiah in such a way that we rest in Him every single day. That's why Paul said some people in the church esteem one day over another. That's fine. Some people esteem every day under the Lord. I'm not going to judge you based on a holy day and don't let anybody else do it. Don't anybody judge you Gentiles on whether you keep the Sabbath or not. But as Christians, Messiah is our Sabbath rest. Is this reflecting in our life at all? It's important to God. It was important enough that Israel left the land for 70 years. And it's important enough 
that the earth itself is going to have a Sabbath rest. This present earth, this present creation is groaning because it's not had any rest since the fall of man. And it will. And it will. Rest in the Lord is important to the Lord. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. I won't get in that today. Hebrews speaks about the rest that Israel found or sought in Canaan. He talks about the spiritual rest or the salvation rest that we have in the Messiah. He talks about the rest that God took in creation. And then based on that creation rest, He looks forward to a rest that still remains for the people of God. In Hebrews, I'll just read this one passage. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. When you look at chapter 3 and 4, he's not talking about the Sabbath day. He's not talking about even the rest we have in our walk with Christ in this earth. He's talking about something else. Chapter 11, he talks about how Abraham and the righteous men of faith looked for that future rest. There remains a rest to the people of God. A Sabbath rest. And it's interesting when you go back to Isaiah the prophet, one of the premier millennium passages is Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, I'm not going to read it. This is where we're introduced to Lucifer who fell from heaven. And Isaiah 14 sums up what takes place at the battle of Armageddon. What happens to Satan when he's cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And how people are wondering, man, this is the one that brought down kingdoms. And look, he's just like us. We've talked about that. Isaiah 14 sheds light on Revelation 20. But in the midst of this chapter, talking about the time period we're looking at now, it tells us, I think I've just kind of lost my place. Uh, Oh, in verse 7, how is the earth described when Christ takes his kingdom? The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. The reason the millennium has to happen to be fulfilled is so that the earth could be at rest. Since the fall of man, the earth never had a Sabbath rest. And creation groans. Israel, the land of Israel wasn't given its Sabbath rest by the people. The people weren't proper stewards of the land. And therefore, God carried him captive. It had its Sabbath rest. Man, who was to toil over the ground in the sweat of his brow, has never been a proper stewardship of what God put in his hands with this earth. Man has never been proper stewards. We're not proper stewards today. I'm not an environmentalist wacko. I don't, I don't worship Gaia or Mother Earth. But God says in Revelation, we've already read this passage and studied it, that He's going to destroy those that destroy the earth. We're not proper stewards. And and, and, and the ones that scream about global warming and climate change, they're not proper stewards either. They're the biggest hypocrites on the planet. They don't want us to drive cars, but they fly in jets, private jets. That stupid little girl from Sweden. Nothing she says means more than zero to me. Want to lecture me? 
when your, your entourage is polluting this world more than what I would do in my whole lifetime when you travel around and lecture the rest of us. That little girl needs a spanking. Go home and shut up. But we have not been proper stewards. And as Christians, we should have led the way in this as a church, being conservationists, but we haven't. And so we've allowed the pagans to take it over. Notwithstanding, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and it will have rest. And that rest is in the millennium. I'll end there today. Um, I want to talk about um, a little bit more about what Jeremiah said to the people. And I want to look at how we can see Israel never obeyed for all those years. And then we're going to look at the present timeline. Okay, if God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, according to the biblical chronology, the present earth has been around for a little more than 6,000 years. If there's 6,000 years of toil and labor, just like God worked and toiled for six days, then it would make sense that the seventh would be a millennium of rest. And yet, where's the Lord? I believe these things are evident in the Scriptures. And I believe that um, uh, that Sabbath rest is coming soon. And I believe the chronology will show it. So I want to look at that a little bit. And then before we talk about what happens at the end of the millennium with Satan, I said we're going to camp out for a while. I want to give you some snapshots from the Old Testament about life in the millennium. There's a lot that we can know about what's coming. And by knowing it, we can rejoice and rest and hope in it. It's going to be a literal kingdom. It's not going to be a democracy. Our founding fathers acknowledged that a constitutional republic was the best that sinful man could offer. But it wasn't permanent. One day it would fail. It would fail when people cease to be moral and fear God. But what's coming is not a democracy, it's a theocracy. What's coming is a society in which men will have private property. There won't be socialism under God's theocracy. There'll be a one-state solution in Israel, not a two-state solution, whereby Jews and Gentiles dwell together. Jesus Christ will be king over the earth. Israel will be the seat of government. Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem will be the capital city. The heavenly Jerusalem will be the camp of the saints. We're going to see that there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. Not built on the site of Mount Moriah. Built on the site of Shiloh where the tabernacle stood. We're going to see Jerusalem much bigger than it is today. We're going to see the topography of the land of Israel change. We're going to see that certain festivals are observed in Israel, one of which the Gentiles are expected to participate in. If they don't, they'll be judged. There's going to be nations. People are going to live to long ages. The curse on the animal kingdom that was magnified after the flood is going to be removed. So I think these things are fun and interesting to look at because they do for us what the Chronicles did for the people of Israel looking back. They allow us in dark days to look forward just like the people in the days of the Chronicles did.
to the ultimate messianic hope, which is a real, literal kingdom, not some kind of phantasmal, uh, ethereal, floating around on clouds with harps, or something that was fulfilled in A.D. 70, like some of these crazy uh, amillennial uh, people teach. So there's a lot, there's some main passages in the Old Testament that talk about the millennium. There are other passages, some of which we often cite at this time of year regarding church, the church, I mean the birth of Christ, that actually tell us more about the millennial reign of Christ. You know, I, I was again reminded in the, in, the, in the rest home the other night as we sang uh, Christmas hymns up and down the hallways that when we sang Joy to the World, we're not talking about that night in Bethlehem. We're talking about the millennial reign that's coming. So I hope you find these things encouraging, interesting, convicting. Convicting and yet a source of hope because this is the future we're waiting for. So much bigger and better than an election in 2020. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful that we can look back in the Old Testament to find warning and yet find learning, exhortation, and hope. So Lord, help us to reflect inwardly like Daniel the prophet did when he prayed over the sins of his nation. Help us to be different than what what we have been. May we not be quiet. May we not turn aside and, 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 and just cast our thoughts away from things that are important to you like the king did with regard to the calf at Bethlehem. Lord, may we speak out for the unborn, speak out against unrighteousness, whether it's popular or not, whether our political party speaks out about it or not. I pray for our president that he would not be like Abijam or Jehu or these others who talked a big talk and ultimately did nothing and had a legacy no different than the other kings. Lord, I pray he would, you would soften his heart that you would humble him and bring him to a place where, like the people of Judah in that battle, they would cry to the Lord and rely upon him. Help us, Lord, to rely upon you and cry out to you, regardless of what the mob has to say. May we have no fear, not fear them, but fear you. So have mercy upon our nation. We pray you'd give us revival as you did in the days of Josiah, even though our destruction is assured, even though we live upon the eve of destruction, Lord, we've seen you give respite and revival that more might come into the kingdom. So many lost are, are lost and perishing. But thank you for the hope we find in your word. And as sure as Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, he will sit upon a throne and reign and rule in righteousness. No corruption, no scandals, no quid pro quo quos. The word of God will be the law of the land and the earth will be at rest. We long for that day. Bless the food we're about to eat. It is a gift from God. The fellowship that's a gift of God even in the darkest of days. And strengthen us to serve you this week. I pray these things in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Amen. I need all the kids...